Not here. <laughs> we, were, we were, for those of us who have been through that journey, we've been in uh, many different buildings, including a shopping centre at one time as well. But we are very blessed to be here and very soon to be breaking ground on our second phase and how marvellous that is. Um, for those of you who don't know, my accent is British. <laughs> thought I'd get that out the way at the beginning. Um, Pastor Tim, uh, as you probably know, Pastor Tim, I, I don't know whether he's at camp meeting now or still in Michigan. He is at camp meeting. He was out in Michigan. Um, he's finishing off his master's right now, so pray for him. He has some assignments he's got to get done. Um, and I think you know that uh, Walt with David Lopez and Isaac, uh, they're all down in Panama. And uh, maybe you recall that two years ago, there was a group of us that went to Panama. And they're, they're in the, I, I understand they're in pretty much the same location. So uh, all, all I can say is, and by the way, that group that went, Ernest, I don't know if Ernest is here. Ernest here? No. I know Sheila can't be here. Michelle? Is Michelle here? Ah, there we go. And I know um, for a lot of us that was a bucket list item, let me put it that way. <laughs> all, all I can say is uh, they had the best porta potties you could ever have. And the uh, hot and cold running solar showers were superb. They really were. Uh, that what I remember most about that trip was we actually, with Maranatha, you, you go there and you, you do a lot of the work and then you get some days or some nights off. And they took us up into the hills because we, we had no air conditioning where we were. And if any of you have been to Panama, the climate, trying to sleep in that climate and work in that climate... It kind of reminded me of Houston, but worse than Houston. So, for those of you who know what Houston's climate is like. And um, we, we all went, they took us up to the hill, the hills. And it was beautiful and cool up there. And I, I was with Sheila and we were, we were on a prayer walk. And we, we ended up, there was this lovely house up there. And it was open. So we all went into the house and what I remember most is just seeing Maranatha people everywhere on the couches sleeping. So, uh, what I would say is I would always recommend a Maranatha trip if you want to lose weight or detox. It's a great experience. You don't need to pay for these expensive health plans, or any of that. There's always a tension when you're asked to speak up here. Um, I, I've been fortunate in my job to do a lot of business presentations. Um, speaking up here is very different than a business presentation because you have to preach to yourself before you can preach to others. You have to turn the headlight on yourself before you can if you don't mind me saying, turn the headlight on you good folks. I remember um, growing up, I, I became an Adventist. I became a Christian when I was 16, uh, but I became an Adventist later on. 
And the only reason I became a Ventus was because of the girl I wanted to marry. I'll be honest with you. And she's in the back room there. Um, and it, over time, the Lord has uh, revealed those truths to me. I was a very serious uh, Christian. I, I went to a Baptist church. I kept Sunday as a Sabbath, etc., etc. So, but what I remember is during college, I, I went to a place called Huddersfield, which is quite near Leeds um, in North England. And I would uh, attend the Huddersfield Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I loved that church. Um, I was the only Caucasian in that church. And everybody knew my name. And it was great. It would be, how are you, Mark? How are you? And it would be, sister, brother. In the UK, you can always say Smith. If you're in Wales, you can say Jones. 50% 50% of people are called by those last names. So it's a but there was, in that Huddersfield church, there was a, an elder who, for some reason, they would keep asking this elder to preach. And I never worked out why, except for they wanted a short service. Because the same thing happened every time he preached. Um, he would go to the front, and he was a, a lovely guy. He would go to the front, he would uh, begin to preach, And then he would begin to sway. Just begin to sway. And the ladies at the front knew what was going to happen because they said, get ready to catch him every time. And inevitably, after about 10, 15 minutes, he would go down. (laughs) And that was the end of the sermon. So my my conclusion was they wanted a short service. If you see me swaying, (laughs) that might mean I want to end this early, by the way, but we'll see how we get on. (laughs) Um, But that that tension I was talking about when you're you're asked to speak up here, that word preach to me, um, I come from a business environment. We don't use that term in business. (laughs) Most people would not like that term. I I like the term talk. But you've really, I've had to go through some self-examination this week and have been found wanting in many ways. So I hope what I share today will be useful for all of you. Um, We have been talking about discipleship and discipleship. I don't know about you, but I've been really enjoying the series that Pastor Walt and Pastor Tim have been doing. Uh, Last week we had was Blessed is the Meek. Okay, I'm going to ask you that. By the way, you've got me next week as well, and I'm going to ask you that question (laughs) too, if you want. But I've really enjoyed that. But we're going to take a little two-week break from that. Uh, We're going to actually go back into the Old Testament. We're still going to have the theme of discipleship, and we're going to look at the prophet Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel, um, and our reading here, the reading we're going to have, Ezekiel 1, 1 to 4. Um, Ezekiel is taken from the Old Testament. As I'm sure you all know, Ezekiel is, is what they call a major prophet as opposed to a minor prophet. Uh, Let's be clear, and you're you're all very sensible people. I'm sure you already know this. But that major versus minor 
is only to do with the length of the book, not the importance of the message. Um, All of the prophets in the Old Testament have very important messages. Um, But Ezekiel is called a major prophet. Some of the other major prophets, you can think of um, Isaiah. Jeremiah was a major prophet. In actual fact, Jeremiah's ministry was happening in Jerusalem and Judah at the same time that Ezekiel's ministry was happening in Babylon. And that's one of the things that we're, we're come on to. Um, Daniel is another major prophet. Interesting is that Daniel was also exiled in Babylon at the same time that Ezekiel was there. Though if you read Daniel and you read Ezekiel, you don't see them referencing each other. What you do see in some of uh, Ezekiel's chapters, uh, you definitely see that he might have been aware of some of Jeremiah's letters. If you read in Jeremiah, Jeremiah wrote letters to the exiles. So we'll come back to some of that. So why don't we, why don't we read through the first four, four verses? Um, and I, I'll say up front on my pronunciation of some of the terms. I have gone onto Google. I have my own Bible software called Logos. If any of you are looking for Bible software, it's brilliant software. And some of these terms are pronounced in ten different ways. So I've chosen a pronunciation. (laughs) Okay, in the 30th year, so if you have your Bibles, I think that would be great. Um, A lot of you probably have it on an iPad or on your iPhone. I know that's what I use. You're not going to see me up here with a Bible. I, um, my Bible's in here and it's on my phone. It goes everywhere with me. So. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles, by the Kebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzai, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Kebar Canal. And the hand of the Lord was upon him there. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. Just a a couple of things to note as we start off here. We have the change of tense going on in this reading. You have uh, the first person. I was among the exiles. I saw the vision. And then you have the switch to the third person. Uh, The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel, the priest, in the land of the Chaldeans. So you've got a switch of tenses going on. I wonder what's happening there. Is that Ezekiel? Is somebody scribing for him? We don't know. We know this is the word of God, but it's just interesting. The other thing is, let me go back one there, out of the north, we come back to that one. Time and time again you see in the Bible 
the terms out of the north for judgment. Who recognizes this lady? My wife says, I always tell British stories, and she's right. I hope you recognize the lady. It's the Queen of England. Um, the quote that you see here is taken from 1992, and what's called the, the Guild Hall speech. It's a speech that she gives uh, every year. She's smiling there with a nice yellow dress on. The reality is she was having a terrible year. Um, Norma and I were actually still living in the UK at this time. Uh, that's my wife. My wife's name is Norma, for those of you who don't know. And um, it, came, it came for this, the time for this speech, and the Queen was not well. She was not well. Her, her voice was hoarse. And uh, she was actually wearing a, a darker dress. And really it was very appropriate that she sounded like that, given the year that she was having. So if, if we read the quote, 1992 is not a year on which I shall look back with undiluted pleasure. In the words of one of my more sympathetic correspondents, it has turned out to be and Annis Horribilis. A year, Annis Horribilis, a year of disaster or misfortune. Um, it turned out that the sympathetic correspondence was a gentleman called Sir Edward Ford. And this is what had happened in 1992 to the Queen and the Royal Family. On the 19th of March, it was announced that the Queen's second son, Prince Andrew, the Duke of York would separate from his then wife, Sarah, Duchess of York, after extensive coverage in the UK press. Do you think the US press can really go after people? The UK press can be unbelievable the way they go after people. On the 23rd of April, uh, the Queen's daughter... Anne, Princess Royal, divorced her husband, Captain Mark Phillips. This is all in the same year. On the 8th of June, Diana, Princess of Wales, still alive at this time. Tell or book, Diana, her true story was published after being serialised in the Sunday Times. Written by Andrew Morton, it revealed for the first time the unhappy truths of the prince's marriage, particularly the affair between Charles, Princess of Wales, and who would later be his wife, Camilla Parker Bowles. That started what became known as the War of the Waleses, because Princess of Wales, Prince of Wales. Same year, on the 20th of August, compromising pictures of the Duchess of York were published in the Daily Mirror. Enough said on that one. On the 24th of August, intimate conversations between the Princess of Wales and James Gilbury, based on a, off a tape recording of their phone calls, was published in The Sun. The Sun is a tabloid newspaper 
in the, um, in the UK. I, I don't know what the equivalent is in the US, uh, but it's, yeah, yeah, the Inquirer, yeah. <laughs> um, on the th so that was on the 24th of August, all in 1992. On the 13th of November, the affair between the Prince of Wales and, Cam and Camilla Parker Bowles was confirmed. A transcript of a recording of their phone calls published in the Daily Mirror, dubbed Camillagate, was, was dubbed Camillagate, so we in the UK have our gates as well. On the 20th November, the Queen's wedding anniversary, just four days before this speech that she gave, Windsor Castle caught fire. Do you remember that? I remember that. Um, and it was ex there was extensive damage to Windsor Castle. The, the Queen then gave her speech, but unfortunately that wasn't the end of her Annis Horribilis. Because then on the 9th of December 1992, after the speech, John Major, who was then the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, announced to the House of Commons that the Prince and Princess of Wales had decided to separate. So in one year, the Queen pretty much saw every single son or daughter go through terrible times in their relationships. Why do I bring that up after reading Ezekiel 1, 1 to 4? What is the relevance between Annis Horribilis a queen was going through and what Ezekiel was going through. Well, I would suggest that as we read those first verses of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is going through Annis Horribilis times five. He had been in five years of exile. Forced exile. And we, we meet, as we read these opening verses, before we meet the prophet, we meet an ordinary man who is going through a very, very difficult time. He's no longer a priest, and he's not yet a prophet. He's sort of in between those two um, situations. So Ezekiel, if, if, if we look at this, first of all, what do we learn from the text? First of all, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, most commentators interpret that to be his age. And there's good precedence for that. So the thinking is here is that Ezekiel is 30, 30 years of age. There are some commentators who take this back to the reign, that 30 years to the reign of uh, Josiah, but most, we're not going to go there today. Most commentators believe that this was the age of Ezekiel. He had been forced uh, to basically come to Babylon. And uh, if you go on to the next, if I go on to the next slide, I, I, for those of you who have heard me talk before, I'm, I'm one of those who I love Bible atlases. When I read I like to look at where the locations are and I also like to try and understand the historic context in terms of the dates 
and where we're at. And this is from a geographical point of view. Uh, when we read these opening verses of Ezekiel, um, this is where we're at. So, first of all, on your left, you can see Judah on the left-hand side, and then you can see Babylon on the right-hand side. Uh, if you took a straight line, if you drew a straight line from Jerusalem over to Babylon, it's around about 550 miles. But of course, they couldn't go straight from Jerusalem to Babylon. They took the route, the route that is in red there. And the reason they did that, you're all sensible people, I'm sure you know why, it comes down to logistics. For those of you in supply chain, <laughs> materials management, they needed water. You had a, a large army, you had exiles, and they could follow the Jordan up to the head of the Jordan, and then they could, go, they could follow the Euphrates all the way down and all its tributaries as well. So that's why you have this north and then southeast. I remember uh, when Norma and I, we were given the opportunity to move to the USA. It was in uh, 1995. And we... we really stressed about it. All of our family is in the UK. We, we had a, it wasn't a, a forced move by any means. It was a job opportunity over here. There was actually a job opportunity in the Bay Area and then one up here as well. And, uh, but all of our family was in the UK. And I remember just how stressful that was as we tried to pray through it and think about what was God's will. Should we move over here or should we stay in the UK normally when you stay somewhere you know you know what's going on <laughs> you know how things are when you step out to do something new who knows <laughs> is it going to work out is it not going to work out and I, and I know a lot of you have been through similar circumstances where you stepped out and, and moved somewhere or, or took a stepped out with the Lord um, that was a very stressful situation can you imagine what this must have been like for Ezekiel and the loss that he went through? He was forced to basically relocate all of that way from, uh, from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. One can only imagine what the loss must have been like for him. Um, just go into the dates, just so we can set ourselves historically on what dates we're talking about here. So when we think about King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon coming in and basically evade, invading Judah, uh, the south, Israel had already gone. Assyria had taken care of uh, north, the Israel, all of the, those ten tribes were already gone. So this was now Babylon and Babylon was coming in and they were going to invade Judah and Benjamin, the only two tribes left. So in terms of dates with King Nebuchadnezzar, we have the first invasion takes place in 605, and that deportation, Daniel is included in that deportation, and he is taken to Babylon. We then have the, the second deportation, in 1597 so we're looking at seven years roughly seven years later and Ezekiel is exiled at this point with King Jehoiakim so King Jehoiakim um, 
is basically taken into exile and Ezekiel goes with him. Uh, you then come down and we have, we have the, the call of Ezekiel. So if we look at the verses we're on right now, we're round about 593, 592. Ezekiel has already been in exile for five years when the call comes. I want you to get that point. He's already been in exile for five years before the vision comes. So that's when, when we read the, these opening verses in Ezekiel, that's the time we're in. After that, 588, um, January, there's actually a siege of Jerusalem that begins. And that is actually when Ezekiel Weiss dies. We're going to come back to that next week. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that one next week. And then finally, in 586, we have Jerusalem destroyed and we have the third deportation. It takes a while. The siege of Jerusalem goes on for a while. Babylon's there. If you read that, you see that Egypt comes up. Um, the king was trying to get an alliance going with Egypt to see if they could save him. Uh, the king of Egypt comes up and eventually that army pretty much gets destroyed. And you read about that, um, how that's the end of the dominion of Egypt at that point as well. So um, king, Nebuchadnezzar, king Nebuchadnezzar comes and Jerusalem is destroyed and there's a third deportation. At that point, King Nebuchadnezzar appoints his own person there to govern and there is actually a fourth deportation. What happens is that... Um, the people rebel against that. The people who are left, who were not deported, they rebel against the governor. And at that point, King Nebuchadnezzar says, no way. So he goes in and he does another deportation. So there's actually four deportations that go on. So if we come, if we come back to the scripture here, what did exile mean for Ezekiel. He pretty much lost everything. The question is, what does a priest, he was training to be a priest, what does a priest do in Babylon? What does he do? So he lost his job. Lost his job. He not only lost his job, he lost his career. Because he was going to be a priest lost his career. So as, as we begin to read these verses, Ezekiel has pretty much lost everything. He lost his home. He lost his finances. He lost his resources. And he lost his relationships. We don't know when Ezekiel married. We know he was married because it says his wife died. We don't know whether that was before the exile or, or after the exile. It's speculation. Um, but if that was, that would have been one of the few relationships that he would have taken into exile with him if it was before the exile. Ezekiel had basically lost control of his life. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like your life is out of control? And by the way, if you don't feel that way and you know someone who does feel that way, have that sensitivity around that. Because often it means you've come through things that you can use to help other people. So when we read this, 
we can so easily miss this. We can go in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal. Good, sounds great. The heavens were open. Okay, the heavens were open. That's great. Heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. Yes, I need visions of God. That's what I need. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of the king of Jehoiakim. Okay? The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. Yes, the word of the Lord came to him. That's what I need. I need the word of the Lord to come to me. And we miss the fact that for five years, Ezekiel had to wait for the word of the Lord. Five long years. It wasn't instantaneous. Five long years of probably utter confusion in his life. What was going on, Lord? I was going to be your priest. Now, my job is gone. My career is gone. My livelihood is gone. My house is gone. My relationships are gone. The place I used to love to live, that's gone. You forced me into exile. What's going on? We can so easily miss that important point. You see, we all love mountaintop experiences. I love them as well. I love the mountaintop experiences with the Lord. Uh, we're very fortunate we have a great church here. And a lot of Sabbaths, it feels like a mountaintop experience. I hope it does today. <laughs> um, but you know, most of our life is lived in the valley. It's lived with the va- in the valley doing the mundane, the ordinary things of life. And in reality, that is where our character is formed. And that is where our trust is formed. And that is where fear meets faith. It's in the valley. I would love us all to have more mountaintop experiences. But it's just not the way it is in this life. It will one day, it will be one continual mountaintop experience. But now is not the time for that. What Ezekiel needed, desperately needed, was a new vision of God. And most of us, when we're going through things, whatever those things can be, whether it's health-related, finance-related, relationship-related, job-related, we desperately need a new vision of the sovereignty of God. I... I try to Google, um, if you type in Ezekiel 1 vision, you get all sorts of pictures (laughs) about the vision. Um, I thought this was a better one. Uh, I I don't know if you can see, but you've got little tiny Ezekiel. It's sort of in the middle. (laughs) Little tiny Ezekiel. Can, Can you imagine? He comes out, he's among the exiles, um, and he comes out, and then suddenly he has this vision of God and to me it kind of looks like a chariot you know I I can imagine he would be relating it to something that he was used to it was coming out of the north 
Um, and so I, I, I think he probably looked at this. He was overwhelmed, clearly, and we'll come on to that. But it kind of looks like a chariot to me. I wonder if Ezekiel thought this vision was about God coming to deliver the exiles from Babylon. And it wasn't about that. Because it was actually about the judgment of God that was going to go against Judah and Jerusalem. But I wonder whether, as Ezekiel saw this, whether he thought, hmm, God is going to deliver me from the exiles. If you read in, um, if you read in exile and you read in Jeremiah, the leaders at the time were saying, don't worry about this exile, it's going to be over very soon. God's going to bring you back. Those were, they were false teachers. False teachers. They were giving people false hope. And it was Eze- people like Ezekiel and people like Jeremiah who basically had to say to the people, no, that isn't going to happen. God's judgment is coming. And for those of you in exile, build houses, plant, you know, commit your way to the Lord, build your houses, plant. That's where you're going to be for 70 years. But I wonder at first, that's all down the line. Ezekiel is just getting the vision here. I wonder whether Ezekiel thought, God's coming to get, he's going to sort those Babylonians out and we're going to be out of exile here very quickly. It is interesting to note that eventually out of the north, the Medes and Persians would come and destroy Babylon. But this was not the time for that. That was going to be some 50 years hence, depending on how you want to date that 70-year period. But that is interesting to know. Out of the north, eventually the Medes and the Persians do come. The imagery here, it, to me, it's just, it's just overwhelming. We haven't got time to go into uh, what these symbols represent. I would encourage all of you, uh, if, if you get a chance for your homework, go, go, go through some of that imagery because, again, put it in the context of a Ezekiel who had pretty much lost hope, lost his job, lost so much, and God coming in and meeting Ezekiel where he was at at that point. Um, the, the vision overwhelmed Ezekiel. We read in Ezekiel 3.15, And I came to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were dwelling by the Kebar Canal, and I sat where they were dwelling, and I sat there overwhelmed for seven days. And I just wonder how, what, in, in what way he was overwhelmed. I'm sure the vision was overwhelming. You go from a point of your life, you're out of control in your life. You know, you're, you're not the one controlling the decisions you're making. You've been taken into exile. Someone else is doing all that. And then you get this vision of the Lord. I think he was probably just overwhelmed with that. And maybe he was overwhelmed as he understood that this wasn't about Uh, the exiles being rescued from Babylon. This was actually about further judgment against Judah that was coming. What I'd like to do is um, talk about 
some lessons that have come out to me. I can only share what the, the Lord has put on my heart. And what, are, what should our response be to fear and anxiety? I'm, I'm sure I'm the only one here who sometimes gets anxious about things. I'm sure none of you ever get anxious, right? Or fear. So let, let's, let's look at that a little bit more and um, some, some responses to that. First of all, I'd like to start with um, our nest will get disturbed. If you look at James 1.2, James 1.2 basically says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The reality is, if we are trying to live a life for Christ, our nest will get disturbed. And sometimes it can really get disturbed, big time. And sometimes that can be our own fault. And sometimes it can be not our fault at all, but the consequence of the world we live in. The Bible talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Most times I think the flesh is bad enough. <laughs> That's a daily battle each of us have to go through. But then there's also the world and the devil as well. And we can be guaranteed, if we want to live Christian lives, that our nest will get disturbed. So the first, the first response to fear and anxiety is that we should expect these things to happen. They will happen during, our, during this life that we have. The second one is trust in the face of all evidence to the contrary. Tozer, A.W. Tozer wrote, God never uses anyone greatly until he tests them deeply. If you look at the, uh, the scriptural quote there, Matthew 7, 11, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Good, give, good, give good gifts to those who ask him. Trust is often at that period where we have to wait. That is when the character is really formed. It's when things are, from a relationship point of view, a job point of view, from a life point of view, when things are not as you wish they were. It is then that we are asked to trust God, even though we don't know how things are going to develop. It is to build in our mind that whatever that situation is that you could be facing or will be facing, that God is already there. That he already knows, knows about that situation 100%. That even though we are in the midst of that situation and we are waiting the reality God is already working in that situation. 
Another, another author put it this way. There are times, says Jesus, when God cannot lift the darkness from you, but trust him. God will appear like an un, unkind friend, but he is not. He will appear like an unnatural father, but he is not. He will appear like an unjust judge, but he is not. Commit your way to the Lord, trust him, and he will act. And we all know what Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. So it's about trusting in the in basically in the face of all the evidence to the contrary. Thirdly, fear meets faith for a growing knowledge of the Lord. I, I don't know what it is, but we tend to grow more during difficult times than when the sunshine is out. That's been my experience. That can be a very painful experience. Um, I know at, at home we're, we're very blessed. We have a porch and the sun sets right in front of our porch. And I, I love going out there in the evening and doing some reading. And Norma will, will often come out as well. But it just helps to give me perspective on the day. Um, we will not grow in grace unless we are using the means of grace. The means of grace... This is one of the means of grace, coming to church. Prayer is a means of grace. Bible study is an important means of grace. If the only time the Bible is being opened once a week on Sabbath, then, uh, I've said it before, it's a starvation diet. That is not the way we grow in grace. And there are a lot of helps for how you can study the Bible. And there's a lot of... um, uh, daily readings you can do around the Bible. I, I, use, I use quite a number of those now, and they can really help you. But we need a growing vision of the Lord. If you look at the, um, the quote there, Colossians 1.10, I'll read that. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So in those verses, there's walking bearing and increasing we have to walk bearing the fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God so we need, we need to have a growing vision of the Lord and that will help us as we're facing times of fear and anxiety the, the fourth point there is all about stewardship and, and what do I mean by this and this is one where as I said, you need to preach to yourself before you preach to others. But um, to me, this is all about realizing that the things of this world are passing away. If you look at the quote, 1 Corinthians 7:31, and I'll read it, those who deal with the world as though they have no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I like the way the NIV puts this one. It says to use the things of this world as though not consumed by them. A lot of times we can, we can become fear, fearful and we can be anxious 
because we are trying to grasp the things of this world too much and not give them up to the Lord. And believe me, that's something each of us, what that means, each of us has to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Because what might be grasping for you or me might not be for another person. But one thing is for sure. If we look at Ezekiel, if Ezekiel had not been taken out of his home, if he had not lost his career as a priest, if he had not been forced to go all the way to Babylon, he never would have had that vision of God. It was as if the Lord had to remove some things from his life to give him better things in life. And I don't say that lightly. I do not say that lightly because I don't even want to pray that because <laughs> I, I, you know, I understand how painful that could be. But sometimes God has to help us get rid of some of our stuff so that we can have a better vision of him. Oswald Chambers, it must be God first, God second, God third, until the life is steadily facing with God. There cannot be a secular and sacred divide in us. There cannot be a mark at church, a mark at home, a mark that works for Hewlett Packard, there can only be one mark. Christianity has to be real in all aspects of our lives. It cannot be a sacred and a secular divide. I know we talk about the church and state divide, but in us, every day, there cannot be that kind of divide. The final point is identification with Christ. We look at the... Uh, Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. There has only been one person without sin in this world, but there has never been a person in this world without sorrow. Christ had many sorrows in his life. And that's why we can so identify with him. We can identify him in his life. We can identify him with him in his death. We can identify with him in his resurrection, in his ascension, and in his glorification as well. The Lord says to us, when we are going through very difficult times and we are being asked to wait, he said to Ezekiel, I know what you are going through. I know exactly what you are going through. And I understand you have no idea where this was going. I know you've lost your job. You've lost your career. You've lost relationships. Your finances are an absolute mess. Relationships, I understand what has happened to you, but I am there with you. That's what the Lord said to Ezekiel. During those five years, you never even knew but I was there already working for you. And the Lord says that to each one of us as well today, that he is with us. 
we can say that the Lord was in that place and we did not know it. I'll finish with this. Um, the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. I'm sure you all know the hymn, Horatio Spafford. The first stanza, first stanza goes, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I'm sure a lot of you know the story behind this hymn. Um, Horatio, he wrote this, he was actually traveling to England and he was at sea. His, his wife and four daughters had gone ahead of him. And there was a tragic accident. That ship actually went down. And he, he had found out about this and he was trying to desperately find out what happened to his wife and his four daughters. And eventually he got a telegram from his wife. And the telegram said, saved alone. Only his wife was saved. He lost his four daughters. He then, after hearing that news, he wrote this song. So when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, gives you more context on that line now. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, whatever we're going through, and I hope you're, you're in a great place, and please, if you do, be sympathetic to those who are going through things. But whatever we're going through, the Lord basically meets us there, and he asks us to trust him, that he has our back, he knows what we're going through, he has already gone ahead, he will act but it might not be as we think <laughs> that he will act. And he asks us to say, in the midst of things, in the valley, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a loving Father, that you know us intimately. You know, all our fears, all our, our anxieties. And Lord, that you've already gone ahead and that you will meet us and do what is needed for the best for each one of us. We praise you for that. We thank you for the record that you've given us of Ezekiel and just the service that you had him go on to, Lord. And uh, we pray for everyone here. Help us to know that you are in this place, whatever place that is for each one of us, that you are there and that we can know it and that we can have confidence in you. Amen.